Welcome one and all to another special Dice Company. And today we have an extra special contributor. Richard, why don't you tell the listeners what we've got for them today? This is a story about what might be a very important day in the life of Papa Angamas, the 10,000-year-old dwarf demigod that we first met in the Christmas episode, who is the spirit of the Feast of Angamas, and has been trapped in the City of the Dead for the last three and a half thousand years. Awesome. Let's crack on with a message in the ruins. Papa Angamas was bored. It is not unusual for dwarves to be bored during long, dull journeys to the bottom of mine shafts, or dreary meetings where somebody insists on taking issue at great length with a footling detail in the minutes of the previous meeting. The boredom of this type is usually bearable because everyone knows that it will not last long, however long it might seem at the time. In Papa Angamas's case, a very real nothing had happened to him for three and a half thousand years, and what was more, it was likely that very real nothings would continue to happen to him for another three and a half thousand years, or ten thousand years, or eternity. This was boredom shading into despair. Since he was a demigod, Papa Angamas could not simply die. If that had been possible, he would have thrown himself off a high building centuries ago, or drunk terminal quantities of eggnog, or maybe have combined the two, which might have been marginally more attractive. But all a desperately bored demigod can do is drift into a trance, and over time this carries the risk of fading away into a crumbling statue. It was not a tempting option. And there was always the possibility, however remote, that somebody one day might be able to break the spell which had sealed him forever inside Stjora Baudavor, now known as the City of the Dead. Bright-eyed and eager adventurers had from time to time shown up, full of confidence that they would be the ones to end the blight, slay the zombies, and destroy the seal. Every time he had greeted them kindly and allowed his hopes to rise, and each time the only result of their endeavours had been a chorus of zombies sniggering in the shadows and an upsetting, munching noise. Gloomily he picked up his only book, a now severely tattered volume entitled Sea Beast Goes to School, he remembered the day, just before the blight struck all those millennia ago, when he had borrowed it from the city library. Although Stjora Baudrevor was mainly an underground city, many of the dwarves did visit the surface, and it had been one of those times in late spring when the sun goes in and out all day behind tiny rain clouds, and showers and bright spells change places once every ten minutes. The sun didn't disappear the moment the rain began to fall, and the rain didn't stop the moment the sun came out, so travellers on the muddy roads of Ovik were often being sunned and rained on at the same time. Nobody could decide whether to wear a coat or not. There were a lot of travellers coming into the city that day because it was the Feast of the Tailors, one of the biggest parties of the year, held as always on the first day of the month of Myrtle, 
or Taylor Moon, as some of the drippier local poets would say. A traveller, passing through the gate of the moon into the city on any normal day, would look down Pavador Street into Guild Square and see a bustling, wealthy place, but nothing particularly unusual by Ovikian standards. But on the Feast of the Tailors, it was different. There were dwarves in full-bottomed wigs and knee-breeches, jostling against dwarves in skin-typed leopard-skin trousers, dwarves dressed as bananas, sausages, fried eggs, coconuts, and goats, dwarves in kilts, chatting to others in multicoloured ponchos, or dressed as mountains with hats resembling snow and little sheep dotted about on their long cloaks, or dressed as huge teacups and saucers, Couples in golden trousers, silver jackets, and long red cloaks skateboarded gracefully along the pavements wherever they could find space, and others, dressed as exotic birds, flitted through the air suspended from wires. The entire population of the country seemed to be there, in a rainbow of coloured silks and satins, cotton and leather, wool and taffeta, plumes, boas and feathers— Jewels twinkled, hats bobbed, outrageous wigs nodded and huddled together, buckled shoes, high heels and tasseled canes clattered along the crowded pavements. A band was playing on a bandstand in the distance, conducted by a dwarf dressed as a waterfall, with real water cascading and foaming down him from cunningly concealed pipes. Papa Angamas as the embodying spirit of a very different festival, always felt somewhat out of place at the Feast of the Tailors. Wearing a long black cloak over his usual red outfit with the hood pulled well over his head, and ignoring remarks such as, "Mm, "'Gorgeous, you must have slaved over that, darling,' he had sidled through the crowd as quickly as possible to the library, to be greeted, for want of a better word, by the librarian Deirdreen.' He had browsed round the shelves, looking for something frothy and light to carry him through the dull months till Angamas, and eventually walked out with Sea Beast Goes to School, which had been prominently displayed on the new arrivals table. The very next day, the blight struck, ending dwarf civilization and imprisoning him in what was now the City of the Dead, doomed to read the same book for three and a half thousand years. He snapped out of his reverie to the ghastly present. Oh, goods, he thought. I can't read this again. I didn't even need the bloody book any more. I could recite every word by heart. There's got to be something else today. He flung the book to the floor, where it disintegrated in a little puff of dry powder, except for one page, which had not been as well thumbed as the rest. Gingerly, he picked it up and read, More books in the wonderful Sea Beast series. Spot of bother for Sea Beast. Look out, Sea Beast. Sea Beast in a pickle. Sea Beast gets wet. Sea Beast takes a lover. If you hated this book, you will certainly not enjoy any of these. Available at all good booksellers. Order your copy today. Papa Angamas felt a little spurt of excitement. Why did he never notice this page before? There were other sea beast books. Could they be in the library too? All he could remember was that Sea Beast Goes to School had been on the new arrivals table, 
so if the library hadn't got the sequels by then, it wasn't likely they would have arrived after the blight struck. Papa Angamas decided to go to the library anyway. It might well be a fruitless errand, but it wasn't as if he had anything else to do. He carefully tucked the fragile piece of paper into his pocket and left the warehouse where he normally passed his empty days. He walked past crumbling buildings to the ruins of Guild Square, turning up what had once been Pavidor Street to where the library had stood on the corner. The buildings on either side of it had collapsed, but the library itself looked in fairly good shape, although the glass in the windows had vanished. A couple of zombies were picking around in the piles of rubble, but fled with the usual gibberings and shriekings when they saw him. He pushed at the rotting wooden doors, which promptly fell down with a boom that echoed through the marble halls of the main reading room. Shh! hissed Deirdrean, glaring at him from her desk in the middle of the reading room. Papa Ungamas jumped. Bloody hell, she was still here, although clearly dead. Oh, it's you, she grated. Allow me to detain you a moment. Let me see. She flipped open a ledger and ran her finger down a page. Yes, Seabeast goes to school overdue by 3,523 years, 7 months, and 3 days. The fine is accordingly 25 million gold pieces, 749,000 silver pieces, and 64 copper pieces, payable now as a condition precedent of any further borrowings. It had to be said that Deirdreen made a good zombie. If anyone could truly be said to have been born to be a zombie, it was her. Her skin was now a greenish-gray, her clothes in rags, and she wore no shoes, but apart from that there was very little difference in her appearance between now and three and a half thousand years earlier. The grissy devotion to the rules which she had always radiated was exactly suited to her new status of zombiehood, though her steadfastly librarian-like soul forbade her from indulging in the normal fleeing, gibbering, and shrieking behaviour. Furthermore, Deirdrean continued tartly, there will be an additional fine of one thousand gold pieces for damage to library property. She glanced towards the wreckage of the doors. What the hell was that? said Papa Angamas. I'm here to borrow some books. Have I not made myself clear? snapped Deirdrean. No borrowings until the fine is paid. Look, Deirdrean said Papa Angamas, walking over to her desk and leaning heavily on it. What the hell's the point of paying any money? Have you not noticed? Civilization has ended that you are a zombie, that money no longer has any meaning, and there's no tune council to pay it to, even if it did, which it doesn't. If there had been any glass in Deirdre's spectacles, it would not have survived the glare she gave him. What I may think, and what you may think, is not the point. The fine is due. Those are the rules, and as long as I am librarian here, they will be followed to the letter. Oh, for God's sake, sighed Papa Angamas, making a series of complex gestures in the air. 
With a sound like fifty gongs rolling down a rocky mountain, several hundred sacks of money landed next to Deirdrine. Deirdrine looked at them. The floor creaked ominously under their weight and then gave way, causing the sacks to fall into the cellar with a crash. That will be a further fine of... I know, another thousand gold pieces for the flare, said Papa Ungermas, waving his hand again and adding another sack to the pile. It's all completely pointless. Not to me, said Deirdrine, with the faintest suggestion of a smirk. On to mere interesting subjects, said Papa Ungermas, producing the scrap of paper. I'm here to... One moment, said Deirdrine, raising a withered hand. Where is the book which you borrowed? It must be returned before there is any question of further borrowings. It disintegrated in a puff of dust. That is not on the list of acceptable excuses for non-return of library property. If a book is destroyed for any other reason, the borrower must refund... Papa Ungermas waved a hand. There was another crash. No, he said. I have here a list of books I'd like to borrow. Do you have them? Unable to put the dreadful moment off any longer, Deirdrine sighed and took the list. Like many librarians, she did not really approve of people coming in and borrowing books. It messed up the systems. Yes... Bottle bottle for sea beast. Look out, sea beast. Sea beast this, sea beast that. Yes, these are all on our index. Not recent arrivals. We had them when you borrowed your book. Do you mind if I ask? Said Papa Angamas. How is it you have any recent arrivals, given the situation? Deirdrine gave him a look of contemptuous surprise. This is a copyright library. A copy of every new book published in Athlon comes here, by law. Wow. On carts. How else? But what about the drivers? Indeed. What about them? Well, what happens to them? Anybody can come in here, but nobody can get out. Deirdrine opened and closed her mouth a few times. I eat them, she said. Flatly. Papa Ungermas began to wish he were somewhere else. And they just send another cart with another driver next time? He said weakly. Yes, of course. Our library system is the envy of Ovik. Well, that's lovely, dear Dean. I'm so glad to know that folk are prepared to die for our library system. I'll no even ask about the horses. So, moving on. Can I have these books? No. Papa Ungermas breathed heavily. Why not? And if you tell me there's some other fine I'd to pay, the next sack's gonna land on your head. Threats of violence are useless. You can't borrow these books because they're out on loan to somebody else. What? Who? I cannot possibly give out confidential information of that nature. She peered at her card index. Hmm, I see, they're all centuries overdue. 
Honestly, fines are a totally inadequate means of instilling a proper sense of civic responsibility for all too many people. Aye, I'd eat them if I were you. A good suggestion, were it not for the fact that most of my customers are also zombies. Oh, quite. They would never do for a zombie to eat another zombie. I mean, that would be cannibalism. But listen, dear dream, if you give me the name of the person with the books, I will personally see to it that the fine is paid, even if I have to pay it myself. Deirdre's eyes gleamed. Oh, very well, she said. It is most irregular, but I will. She writhed painfully in her chair. Make an exception. Just this once. The borrower is Joshua the Stylite. He borrowed them later on the same day you borrowed yours, so I need not repeat the amount of the fine he owes. I shall expect payment within seven days. Good afternoon. She bent over her desk again and picked up her quill. Evidently the conversation was over, and Papa Ungermas left the building in deep thought. Joshua the Stylite. There was somebody he hadn't thought of in a long time. If he still existed, he would not be hard to find, since he spent all his time sitting some eighty feet above the ground on a column in the centre of Guild Square. The column looked as if it had once been part of some ancient building, possibly one of a row of columns. This building, whatever it had been, had long since vanished even by the time the blight struck, but the column had stayed on, blackened, antique, and broken, at the heart of the city. How Joshua had got up there, or exactly when, was a mystery. He had first been noticed by a dwarf mending slates on a nearby roof, who nearly plunged to his death with the shock of it. Nobody could be quite sure that he hadn't been there for some time already. After all, he didn't go around looking at the top of pillars much. He seemed to be about forty, with a tangled mop of shaggy grey hair, sprinkled with black. His long beard was also black and grey, and he wore nothing apart from a sort of brownish loincloth. He sat cross-legged, his hands on his bony knees with the palms turned upwards, staring out of his wild hair with misty blue eyes. And this led to the most baffling questions, which were why he'd gone up there, and what he thought he was doing. It was no use shouting to him from nearby buildings or for newspaper reporters to climb giddily to the top of the column on ladders to attempt an interview. Joshua never spoke and never came down. He sat day after day, year after year, never visibly changing, gazing out over the city. Nobody even knew his real name and only called him Joshua because it sounded right. Joshua's longevity clearly proved that he was some sort of celestial being. Beyond that, the dwarves could only speculate that he was a mystic and was meditating. They were immensely proud of him, and every morning a little basket of fruit, nuts, bread and water was raised up to him on an extendable pole, along with a clean chamber pot. In the evening the pole was raised to him again, and he attached the empty basket and full chamber pot to be taken down. This was the only thing he was ever seen to do. The rest of the time he sat still, silent, and inscrutable. What thoughts, if any, passed through his head was anybody's guess.
Perhaps he watched over the events of the city, in which he took no part, with a sort of distant concern. Or perhaps, and this seemed more likely, he ignored them completely, regarding the dwarves as being as weird and inexplicable as they thought him. But now, it seemed that the day before the blight had struck, this being had come down from his column and borrowed out some books. That would have been an extraordinary event in itself. And what had happened then? Had he been devoured? Or escaped with the books? Or gone back up his column with them and settled down for a nice read? Could he even have stayed in his column, it being hard to imagine the mindless denizens of the City of the Dead delivering food and chamber pots to him? Perhaps he had never needed the food, and only ate it because he was a polite demigod. Or maybe he had flown back up his column, gone into a trance, and turned into a statue. There are a lot of columns in the world with statues on top that were once demigods. Papa Angamas walked back to Guild Square and looked up at the ancient column, now more ruinous than ever, but still just managing to stand. The plinth at the top, where Joshua had spent so many centuries, appeared to be empty, but it was hard to be entirely sure from the ground. Muttering a few words of power, he summoned his sleigh. The sleigh, drawn by a single elderly reindeer, came grinding down the street about half an hour later, scattering just enough snow around it to allow it to move, and Papa Angamas clambered aboard. It took all his powers of persuasion to get the reindeer to leave the ground and fly up to the top of the column, where they hovered next to the plinth. There was no sign of Joshua, but there was what appeared to be a pile of books. The sleigh was equipped with a handy crossbow which launched large nets, used in days gone by to catch naughty dwarves. Papa Angamas fired it at the plinth and netted the books, which were neatly deposited on the seat beside him. Yes, here they were, spot a ball of a sea beast, look out, sea beast, he bit in a pickle, sea beast gets wet. Oh, no sea beast takes a lover. Another ghastly interview with Deirdreen loomed. Papa Angamas carefully leafed through the books. They were mouldy and damp, but still pretty much intact and readable. It wasn't until he replaced the books on the seat that he noticed a small brownish note sticking out of one of them. He took it gingerly. Fortunately, it was on parchment, so had lasted better than the books. Unfolding it, he read, in a crabbed and scrawling hand, to whomsoever may find this greeting, I am in haste, for I see below me only ruin and disaster, and clear it is that my long sojourn in this place is come to an end. But I may not simply flee while there is yet time, despite my great temptation to do so, for such cowardly dealings would be but poor recompense for the kindness and generosity shown me by the good citizens of this place, so that to desert them in their hour of greatest need would be the actions of a rascal and a scoundrel. And though it be beyond my powers to aid them all as I would wish to do, yet I may still be of service to some of them. Accordingly, 
I am resolved to descend at last from here, and to gather to me such citizens as may be unaffected by the pestilence unleashed upon us, and, should the gods smile on me, I shall lead them hence, and cast a spell of sealing on this accursed place that none may leave after we are gone. I shall entrust this writing to the pages of these volumes that it may be better preserved, though I take one such volume with me, as I will have need of diversion in the dark days that lie ahead, and it would appear it deals with matters of the heart, of which I have but little acquaintance. The hour has come. I can write no more, though indeed I scarcely know why I do so, except I have a presentiment that one may come to which it will be of importance. And so I bid thee most heartily farewell, and may better fortune than is my lot attend thee always. There followed a complex rune which Papa Angamas could not read. He flew somberly back to his warehouse. So Joshua had been the mage who cast the spell of sealing. There was no doubt that he'd had the best of intentions, and his desperate actions had probably saved the world. But they had also inflicted millennia of misery on Papa Angramas. The only tiny bright spot was that he now had four new Sea Beast books. Not Sea Beast Takes a Lover, though. He wondered idly where that book might be. Sighing heavily, he slumped into his favorite chair. His instinct told him that it was now, in fact, Angramas Eve. In an attempt to cheer himself up, he made a few passes in the air, conjuring up some falling snow outside and the sound of jingling sleigh bells. Staring bleakly ahead, he suddenly heard a coach and horses draw up outside and the sound of a handbrake being pulled. (laughs) 